Parsha Fitzaveh, the first section of the Parsha, is about the big dekuna of the Kohen Gadol, the special, the special garments that the Torah commands he wears. The Kohen Hedyot have to wear garments as well, four of them, simpler ones. But the, the ones of the Kohen Gadol were, were more opulent, were more elaborate. And the Torah details most of them in this week's Parsha. Two of them in particular, the Ephron and the Choshen, the Choshen was a breastplate. It was a square piece of cloth folded over, worn on his chest. The ephod is not clear what it was exactly, some kind of apron thing. But the, the Choshen and the ephod were related. They were connected at multiple points. And one commonality between them was they both had gemstones. They both had precious stones attached to them. And on, bo- on both sets of these stones the names of the sons of Israel, the names of the 12 Shvatim, were engraved. About the ephod, the Torah says that the ephod, whatever it exactly was, the ephod had two straps that went over the coin shoulders, and on the straps it says, you took two avne shoam, two shoam stones, ufitach ta'alehem shmos b'nei Yisrael, and you engrave on them the names of the b'nei Yisrael, shishamishmosam, six of the names on one stone, the other six on the other stone, and then it says, how was this done? Masei Harash, Evan, Harash Evan, the work of uh, someone who works with stones. Pituche Chosam, engraved like a signet ring. Tefatach Estehavanim. And the, the, so the, the two shoulder straps, each one had one stone. Each one had six of the names of the tribes of Israel. And they, the names were engraved. Masei Harash Evan, Pituche Chosam. Then the Torah describes the Choshen. The Choshen went on the chest of the Kohen Gadol. The defining feature of the Choshen, of course, was the 12 stones, the four rows of three stones. Four, four rows of stone. The Torah lists the names of the 12 stones. And then it says that all these stones, they were placed in settings and boxes of gold, in their fullness. We'll discuss what that means soon. And then the Pasuk says, Again, these stones would have the Shmos B'nai Yisrael, V'havanim Tiyana al Shmos B'nai Yisrael, Shtem Yisrael Shmosam, one name on each of the twelve stones. Again, Pituche Chosam. This was done by Pituche Chosam engraving as on signet rings. The Mishnah and Tosefta and Talmud Bavli in Masechah discusses how this engraving took place. And the and it says that this engraving was done with a this engraving was done with a the the Bavli at least says that, that, that this this engraving was done with a shamir something called the shamir the mission in Sota this has nothing to do with Sota in general but the mission the Mishnah is at the end of Sota are discussing all kinds of wonderful things important things that eventually left left the world left the Jewish people. As things got worse, the, the different different aspects of the korban and the destruction and the exile, various prominent uh, prominent assets we had, prominent spiritual aspects we had. The one mission after another talks about how, how when all these things left, and one of the things that disappeared, it's the, the mission says in Sota, harishonim urim When the neviim rishonim died, uh, the then batlu urim v'tumim, the urim v'tumim, another. Thing mentioned in our parasha, a very mysterious thing. The Torah just—I'm I'm, always—I'm always amazed by this. The Torah just says, "Put the urim v'tumim inside." What on earth is an urim v'tumim? 
The commentaries are all over the map here. How are we supposed to know what an Urim Vatum is? I guess that's why you need Tarish Shabal Pep. But Urim Vatumim, whatever it was, was Batel with the death of the Nevi'im Rishonim. Mishachara Beis Amikdash, when the temple was destroyed, Batel HaShamir, something called the Shamir, was Batel, that we no longer had it. It was gone. Right, so we'll discuss what the Shamir was, that that'll be the focus of our share, but yeah, presumably it means all the Shamirs, the accessibility of the, the Shamir, whatever it was, was Batel at the Chorban of the, of the Beis Mikdash. Which Beis Mikdash? That's actually the subject of considerable dispute. There's a, uh, there, 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 there's, there's a lot of discussion about which Beis Mikdash it meant. Tosu says, Tosu says that Bayashani had the Shamir, the, no, it doesn't mean the Bayes Rishon did, but some say it was lost after the Bayes Rishon, and then the and it was not around during Bayesheni. Some say it was it, they had it through the Bayesheni, and it was lost after the Bayesheni. Tosa says that the, the previous part of the Mishnah, Urim Vatumim, Mishim Mesu, Nevi'im Rishonim, Batal Urim Vatumim, Nevi'im Rishonim was the end of the Bayes Rishon, and therefore Mishachar Beit HaMikdash is the Bayesheni. But that, that's debated. But any, in any event, at the, with the destruction of one of the Bate Mikdash, the Shamir was Batel. Mission doesn't tell you what the Shamir is, what it's what 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 the point of it was, why was it so important. Mission just tell Mission apparently assumes you know what the Shamir is, and it tells you that the wonderful Shamir was Batel with the Khurban Beta Mikdash. Shamir appears in another mission as well. Shamir appears in Pirkeyavas. Mission Pirkeyavas says, Asaradvarim Nivru Ba'arab Shabbos bin Ashmashos, there were ten things that were created at the very end of the creation of the world, Erev Shabbos, God finished the creation of the entire world, that uh, He finished the creation in six days, in six days, God rested on the seventh day. Some things were created at the very last minute of, the, of creation, Erev Shabbos, Ben Hashmashos, the Eluhain, the Mishnah lists a variety of things, ten things, sometimes I'm at other things, Difficult, uh, it's not immediately clear what the commonality in all these things is. It includes uh, things as diverse as the mouth of the donkey, Bilam's talking donkey, the keshes, the rainbow, the mun, the shamir, the, 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 the piharet, the, the very first one is piharet, the mouth of the, of, the, of the ground that opened for Korach. The, right, the, the tongs is one of the ones listed as the, one of the Yeshom rooms. The Yeshom mouth fast, but fast. The tongs are made with other tongs. The very first tongs had to be made. By Hashem, special creation. So, what exactly these ten, and then additional uh, fourteen, four other things? What exactly? Some of them are Nisim, clearly the the, 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 the mouth of the donkey, the, the the opening of the ground. Some of them seem to be uh, seem to be more more natural features. The not entirely, but most of these are something special, but uh, not entirely clear. The Mefarshim obviously have a lot to say about what the theme of this list is. But one of the items on the list, item number seven, is the Shamir. The Shamir is one of the ten things that was created, Ben Hashmashos, of creation. Again, no, no, no inkling about what the Shamir actually is. Animal, mineral, or vegetable, some of the things on the list are, are one or the other. So neither mission gives us any real hint. Why it wasn't created on Wednesday, on Thursday with the critters. You know, yeah, well, it, whatever it was, it, it wasn't an ordinary, uh, an ordinary thing, or it would have been created earlier. So clearly it was something special, something unique, and we have, to, we have to learn, we have to figure out what exactly it was and what was so special about it. So, so you can say, what's so special about the Ben Hashemoshos? Uh-huh. 
Yeah, so, so there, there, are a lot, there are a lot of questions about this mission. Of what's the significance of Ben Ashmashos? What, what, what does it mean? What's the, what, what, what's the order of this list? What, why are some things earlier in the list and later? When I, I'm not going to get too, 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 leave that for another time. I'm not going to get too deeply into the list. But these two Mishnayas mention the Shamir. They don't tell us what it is. Okay. So we have next the Tosefta. The Tosefta in Sota, it, it, it says, Amr Yehuda, what is the Shamir? Mativa Shel Shamir Zeh. What is it? And what's so great about it? What, what, what is the Shamir? He says, it is a Bria Haisa Mishesh Mebereshis. That's uh, an allusion to the mission of Berkeyavas. It's a creation uh, from the Shesh Mebereshis. Bria, in the language of Chazal, commonly is, is, is the equivalent of the English creature. Creature impl- comes from the word create, obviously, but creature is typically used to mean a living creature. But the Bria and Chazal, similarly, typically Bria is used to mean a living creature. Again, it could technically mean any kind of creation, and we're going to see some learn maybe it wasn't a living creature, but the simple reading of the Brisa is it was a Bria, it was a living creature, created in Shesh Mebreshis, and its power is, its unique capability is, when you, when you place it on anything, on stones, on koros, on beams, they just split and, 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 and open, they sep- the, the parts of the, of, the, of the substance separate. There's no, there's no uh, damage and, 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 and roughness and, and breaking. It's like the leaves of a book, they're just the leaves of a ledger, they just open, they split cleanly and evenly, that's what the Shamir could do. You put it on something, it caused the, 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 the item to split. Clean split, right. And even iron, iron splits. And it's like, that, uh, it's like that science fiction thought experiment of the universal solvent. Uh, what do you keep it in? Something can dissolve anything. <laughs> what kind of bottle do you put it in? Ain't called Dover boat. Nothing can hold it. Whatever you put it in, it'll just split and crack it and fall out. Kate said, how do you store it? You put it in very soft things. Ironically, paradoxically, soft things can contain it. You put it on something hard, cracks, and, 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 and it can get out. But you put it on soft things, muchen shel tzemer, pieces of wool, and you put it in toch, something of lead, full of suvins, the, the bran, the soft parts, apparently, of the, of the wheat, of the barley, suvin shel seorim. Now that's how you store it. You store it in a special lead vessel with soft linings, and that's how you store it. Not sure why it has to be led, but that's what the Brisa says. And then the Brisa says, Shlomo used, Shlomo used it to build, to build the base. It makes sense. We'll discuss that in the context of the Babli. Yeah, we'll discuss that story soon. And then, then the, 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 right, right, right. Okay, yeah, we'll get to that soon. The, the, Bryce, the, the Bryce brings different opinions, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Nehemia, Rabbi, we'll discuss those soon in the context of the Bavli. The Bavli also brings, brings this Bryce and adds a little bit to it. The Bavli says, what is the Shamir? The Shamir is something that Shlomo used to build the base of Mikdash. Why did Shlomo need a Shamir to, to build the base of Mikdash? And where do we see this alluded to in the Psukim? So it brings the Pasukim Malachim, when the, the, the Psukim describe at great length the, Shlomo's construction of the base of Mikdash, first base of Mikdash, and it says, So, Evan Shlema Masa Nivna, it was built of Evan Shlema, whole stones, not cut, not broken, from the quarry. And so it says the stones were whole, apparently they weren't cut. So that means, so now obviously the, the Gemara, the Bryce assumes there was some shaping, there was some processing done, but they weren't cut, they weren't cut with ordinary tools. So how were they cut? So the Gemara says, the Gemara says that, the, the first sheet says, 
The Rabbi Yehuda Shita is Dvarim Kiksavan. It means exactly what it says. The stones were not touched by ordinary tools. No, no iron, no, no regular stone-working tools touched these stones. How were they shaped? They were shaped by the Shamir, Dibri Rabbi Yehuda. This is in Sota Daf. This is in Sota Daf Lamed Hey Amud. I'm sorry, Sota Memches Amud Beis. So, so the Mishnah is Memches Amud Alf. I think the Bukmar is Memches Amud Beis. Rabbi Chemia says, "How can you say they weren't cut with tools?" Halak Farnemar Kalela Avon in the Akaros Megaros Megera. There's an explicit pasuk that says the stones used were precious stones, and they were. Yikaros, I think some say means heavy, some say the precious, but dear. Which stones are you talking about? Stones for the building or stones for the Kalyadol? Yeah, so the, the, no, these were stones of the base of Mekdash, stones for construction stones. So precious stones? What do you mean precious so stones? precious, I don't know if it means they were diamond, but it means they were like marble, they, 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 they were nice and ele- elegant hush of a stone, not just, uh, not just uh, rock, not just ordinary rocks. So it says in Megaros and Megera, they, 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 they were sawed with, with saws. What do you mean they, were, they didn't use any tools? This passage, the previous passage says, Evan Shlema Master Nivna. This one says they were sawed with, they, they were sawed. So, Imkain, Matamud Lomar, but there's a third passage that says, Lo Nishma Banoso. It says that tools, a- hammers, axes, tools of iron were not heard in the base of Mikdash when they, when they built it. So I'm telling you that they, this passage says they, were, they did use saws. That passage says that there were no tools used, when, no iron tools used when they built it. So that's what the Gemara says, right. So, so as David says, they, they, right, so that, that's, what, that, that's what David says, that, that, that's, what, that's the sheet of Rabbi Nechemiah. They were, they were processed using iron tools off-site on the, on the, or on-site of the quarry, not in the base of Mikdash. They were processed outside, and then they brought into the base of Mikdash that they didn't use any iron tools on the side of the base of Mikdash. This is the sheet of Rabbi Nechemia. There was no Shamir involved. The Pasuk explicitly says that they were Megaros and Megera. They used iron tools. The other Pesukim that say, the other Pasuk that says that they were, that no tools were used, that means, that th- that Pasuk means that, that no tools were used in the base of Mikdash, but tools were used outside. So according to Rabbi Nechemia, there was no Shamir involved. They were cut with tools, just not on side of the base of Mikdash. According to Rabbi Yudha, they were not cut with tools. They were Evan Shlema, and therefore Dvarm Kiksavan, they used the Shamir for that. Amar Rebbe, Rebbe, Rebbe Yudanasi, the compiler of the Mishnah, he says, he has a compromised position, he says, Rebbe Yudha is correct, I, I agree with Rebbe Yehuda with regard to the stones of the Mikdash, the Mikdash itself, that they, they were not cut with iron tools, they were cut with, uh, with the Shamir, apparently. The Pesachim over there, Bashlam HaMelech, described the construction of the Mesa Mikdash, they also described the construction of a personal palace that Shlomo built. Some of the Pesachim are confusing exactly what we're talking about, I think, at least they were confusing to me when I learned it, but the, there was also a personal palace that Shlomo built, and Rav Nehemi is correct that those stones, they're the ones the Pesachim refers to when it said they were cut, but they were cut off-site. So yes, that Pesachim does say that, that they used uh, iron tools, but that was, for the, that was for the stones of Shlomo's personal residence. Beis Amikdash stone didn't have any tools at all, and they used only the Shamir. So now the Gemara says that there are three sheetas. We have the sheeta of Rabbi Yehuda that the Beis Amikdash stones used the Shamir. We have the sheeta of Rabbi Nechemia, who apparently holds that none of the stones used the Shamir. They all used iron off-site, off, off-site of the Beis Amikdash, both the stones of the Mikdash and the stones of his personal residence. We have Rabbi Shita who splits it and says Beis Amikdash stones, like Rabbi Yehuda, used the Shamir. Other stones used the iron tools off-site. 
Rebbe Nechemia himself doesn't make this distinction. Rebbe Nechemia himself says that all the stones used the iron tools. There was no shamir. They, they used everything for the iron tools. We used for everything as long as they didn't bring the tools on side of the base of Mikdash. So the Gemara says, okay, so Rebbe holds the need of the shamir for the Avnei Mikdash. Those at least didn't use iron tools. But according to Rabbi Nechemia, what did they use the shamir for? We know there was a shamir. Mishnah Sota says that they lost it. The Mishnah in uh, Perkyavah says they had it. there was a shamir with something important. Lamayasas, so what is the shamir then? What, what do they use it for if it wasn't needed for anything in the base of Mikdash? He says it was, this is what the Bavli adds. The Bavli adds that the Tosefta just ends here, and the Ushalmi also just ends here, and, and, and just says there were two opinions, but it doesn't say, according to Rabbi Nechemia, what they do with the shamir. The Bavli adds something very important. The Bavli says, and this brings us back to our Pasha. Brings another price. It says the stones of the Ephod or the Choshen, the stones, they couldn't, they, how, are they, how do they have the, the names of the Shvatan written on them? They couldn't just write them with ink, with a regular pen and ink, because the Torah says, Bituchechosam, engraved, engraved like a signet ring. That means it was engraved in a three dimensional way, not ink on the surface. Also, you can't use a scalpel, a knife to, to, to gouge and cut the stones, which is how normally you would do engraving. We mentioned earlier the stones of the Choshen are described as being bimiluosam in their fullness, in their full settings. Chazal darshan, this price of darshan, that means the entire material of the stone is present, nothing was missing. If you take a knife and carve out letters, what you're essentially doing is removing a small amount of material. Can't do that because it says bimiluosam. So no gouging. So how do they do it? They use the Shamir. They, they, they wrote the letters first in ink, and that didn't count because it had to be engraved. But that was a guide; those were guidelines for the shamir. Marin lehem shamir. They placed the shamir on the surface. Vein of kos The stones would split. It's an interesting kind of splitting. Normally, if a stone splits, it's two pieces. Here, you want splits that would form that would be wide enough to form letters, but not that the whole stone should crack. So somehow, I don't know how this worked exactly, but somehow the stone would develop cracks in it without missing any material, but still would become far enough apart so you can see letters having trouble visualizing how a rigid stone can deform like that, but that's all part of the power of the shamir. It can split the stone, not necessarily into two, but enough that you can form letters. And and that's how they did it, and that was the purpose of the shamir, according to Rabbi Nechemia. Could it be the timing? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Put it down just for a moment, small split. Yep, there there may have been technique involved, right? Be careful exactly how long you apply it, yep. It was probably chachma as well, as well as... uh, as well as finding the Shamir. Right, so the Shamir was following the, the, ink, the ink layouts, apparently. How, why the Shamir cared about the ink, I don't know. Maybe it was a good tasting ink, I'm not sure. <laughs> the, 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 the Gemara goes on, Tanara Banan, Shamir Zebriyasa Kisaora, it has some aspect of a barley in size, presumably, and Cheshme Bereshis Nivra, as per Perkyavos, who was created in the six days of creation. And as we saw before, the hardest things cannot stand in the presence of the shamir. How do you store it? Again, the bits of wool, tufts of wool, and in a, in, a, in a leaden vessel full of barley bran. Fine. So the Yushami we mentioned earlier also brings this machlokas, the three of the between Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Nehemia, and Rabbi's compromise. Very, very closely parallel to the Bavli. It's an unusual, you know, the Yushami often is different in significant ways. Here, the Yushami throughout the discussion of the three Tanaim, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Nehemia, and Rabbi, the, the, the Yushalmi parallels the Bavli, but then that's where, that's where it's different. The Yushalmi does not have the last section of the, of the last section of the Avnei Achoshet. It doesn't ask, what did Rabbi Nehemia use the Shemir for? Yushalmi doesn't raise the question. 
doesn't mention anything about Bimiluosam. As a matter of fact, earlier in the Masechta, earlier in the Yushalmi and Sota, this Yushalmi is on that mission at the end. But earlier in the Masechta, the Yushalmi darshan Bimiluosam for something else. It darshans that the, the letters of the Shvatim on the Avni, on the, that the, just like they're split on the Choshen, they were split on the Eifert as well. And the, that, 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 that the letters should be 25, the, 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 I'm sorry, just like, just like they were split uh, somewhere, they were split on the A-foot as well. There had to be 25 letters on each side. The Gemara is talking about Hargrizim, the original part of the Yushalm, I think, is talking about Hargrizim and Harevel, the, the way the Shvatim were divided there. It says here also on the A-foot, they were divided into two groups. Each one had 25 letters. The Yushalm had a bunch of technical questions. There were only 49. It says Binyamin, one of the, Binyamin was Malay, had an extra letter, or Yehosef was Malay, Agents B. Yehosef, Samo. How did, how did that work out? Then there would have been 23 and 27. So they, they split the word Binyamin. They put Binyamin part on one and part on the other. Okay, so they, they, they arranged the, the letters in two groups, 25 letters on one, 25 letters on the other, on, 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 one, of the, on, on one of the two stones, I think on one of the two stones of the Eifod. For the six Shvatim. For, for, six, for well, six, or Binyamin was split, but yeah, around six Shvatim on one, as the Torah says, Shishim Mishmat 11 Echad. But, and, and, and the makar for all this is because it says, Bimiluosam. It says that they have to be fullness, mean they have to be even and well matched. So the Shalmi has a different drasha from Bimiluosam. So, A, it doesn't bring the whole discussion of the Shamir in, in the context of the Avnei Achosh. It brings the Shamir, but only in the context of Shlomo and his, and his basic Mikdash and palace, not in the context of the Avnei Achosh. And the word Bimiluosam, which, which, which triggers the whole requirement to use the Shamir for the Avnei Achosh, it darshans differently. It darshans it for the. The, telling you the, 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 the mathematical properties, the arithmetic properties of the division of the, of the names into two equal groups. So some Akronim actually suggest that the Bavli disagrees, that the Yushalmi disagrees with the Bavli. The Yushalmi says, there's no din that the Choshen had to be bimiluosim. You were allowed to use a knife to, uh, you're allowed to use a knife to, 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 to engrave the stones of the Choshen. It makes no mention of the Shamir in that context. It darshans bimiluosim with something else. But some actually suggest that the Yushalmi may, may actually hold that the, the, you, don't, you don't need a Shamer for the Avnei Achoshim. And this takes us to the Rambam. The Rambam, in the Mishnah Torah, when he describes how they, how they fashioned the, the Choshen, he just says, you take the stones, put them in the Ephod, put them in the Choshen, and the Rambam says that, and then what do you do? You engrave them. You engrave them, the Rambam says. The Rambam just says, what do you do? You engrave on the stones. No mention of any Shamer. No mention of any halacha bimiluosam, that, you, that they have to be the full quantity of material in the stone. Nothing. Rambam is totally silent on, on Shamir, totally silent on, on any halacha bimiluosam, and he implies you engrave it as per normal engraving. So, what is that all about? Mishnah Melech says it's a Gemara. The Gemara says it didn't bimiluosam, and, and how could he leave it out? Mishnah Melech doesn't know. Throws up his hands and says he doesn't understand the Rambam. The. So, so some learn that, as we said before, the Merkavah's Mishnah quotes the Pnei Moshe. I didn't actually succeed in tracking down the Pnei Moshe. But the Merkavah's Mishnah quotes the Pnei Moshe that the Yushalmi disagrees. Well, actually, uh, we, 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 we saw that, and we saw that not in the Pnei Moshe, but we quoted that from, the, from a different commentary on the Yushalmi, from the Mare Aponim. <laughs> so according to that approach, he says, it's Machlokas Bavli and Yushalmi, and the Yushalmi says, it's no din bimiluosam. So maybe... Rekhev's mission says maybe that the, he implies maybe the Rambam passing like the Yushalmi. A little bit schwer. The, why would the Rambam pass like the Yushalmi instead of a Bavli? It seems like an odd thing to do. Okay, sometimes the Rambam does that. Furthermore, some suggest, the, the Shari Carbon suggests, that 
Maybe it's Machlokas in the Bavli as well, because the one who says you, you, you use the Shamir for the, Rabbi Yehudu says you use the Shamir for the Beis Mikdash, he may hold, you don't need it for the Choshen. Rabbi Chemi says you didn't use it for the Beis Mikdash, he held, he had to say you need it for the Choshen. Maybe Rabbi Yehudu, maybe Rabbi Yehudu disagrees and says that you don't need the Shamir for the Choshen. The problem is that Raman passing like Rabbi apparently, that, that they didn't use the Shamir for the Beis Mikdash either, yeah. so that leave, that's a little difficult. Anyway, so the Rambam is a little hard to understand. That he leaves out, it's an explicit bavli that seems to say that you need the shamer for the Avni Achoshen, and there's a din bimiluosim, that you cannot do it with a knife, and Rambam leaves it out. The Karanara has another approach. The Karanara says, as we're going to see momentarily, the shamer was very, very difficult to get a hold of. We're about to see an incredible, uh, incredibly dramatic and uh, fascinating story of how you actually obtain a shamer. It takes quite some doing, and, and it was lost, Mishachar Beis Amikdash, anyway. So, for, for much of history, in practice, the Shemir was not always available. So the Rambam understood, the Shemir is only l'chatchila, this din bimilosim is only l'chatchila. Ideally, the best way to do it, if you can, is to use a Shemir. It's not ma'akev, even when there was no Shemir, they, they still had avne achoshen and avne haifod. It's not, not ma'akev v'dieved. And therefore, the Rambam says, since mi'ikra din, it's kosher with an ordinary engraving, and the Shemir is a relatively exotic and not always, not always available thing, therefore the Rambam left it out. Again, not so satisfying, because self calls self. The Gemara says, you should do it. So the Ram should bring as well. It wasn't always available. The Ram writes about a lot of things that aren't always available. So, Tchelas and other things. So, so, so why, uh, why would he leave out the Shamir just because it's not so available? Okay, it's a difficult Ram, one way or another. Some suggest, some modern authors suggest, and this perhaps works in tandem with some of the other explanations, but some modern, some modern authors suggest as we've discussed in the past, the Rambam had, had, had a general attitude that he didn't bring the supernatural down. The Rambam didn't bring things down that were not uh, scientific, that involved the paranormal. Rambam leaves out all kinds of halachas involving demons. He leaves out halachas involving magic and, uh, and uh, ruach ra, evil spirits. So there are dozens or hundreds of places where the Rambam leaves out, apparently, halachic gemaras. Certainly the Rambam leaves out agadic gemaras, gemaras that are not halachic. He certainly doesn't bring most of them down in his Mishnah Torah, even when, even when they're uh, perfectly down to earth. But even halachic gemaras, there are a number of halachic gemaras, Professor Mark Shapiro, in his studies in Maimonides and his interpreters, collects many, many of these examples that Rambam left out. There seems to be a clear pattern of Rambam leaving out any halacha that's, that involves the supernatural. But uh, Rambam doesn't bring it down. One way or another, he, he reworks or rephrases or reinterprets the halacha in such a way that any, any mention of the supernatural is omitted. Now, it's interesting that for hundreds of years after the Rambam, this principle was not acknowledged, was not articulated by the classic Mepharshim of the Rambam. This principle that Rambam, the Rambam does not bring the supernatural in his Mishnah Torah was not acknowledged by, the, by, by Rishonim and Achronim. All these Rambams in different places where he omitted details of Gemaras, and he, uh, for example, the Gemara in Gitzin and Yivama says, if you hear a voice call out, uh, my name is so-and-so, please write a get. I, I authorize you to write a get for my wife, so we can listen, we can listen, we can trust him, and we can write the get. The Gemara, the Gemara says, maybe it's a demonic impersonator. How do you know it's really the person? Maybe demons like to do mischief. Maybe it's a demonic impersonator. So the Gemara says, you see a kind of shadow. Well, maybe they have shadows also, the Gemara says. Demons have shadows as well. You see a, a different kind of shadow, a, a babua de babua, a secondary shadow. That we know that demons don't have. Similar to the, it's, it's, a, it's similar to in, in, in uh, Dracula, the, the vampires don't don't cast reflections in mirrors. So, yeah, yeah. It apparently, it was a, it was an old belief, and Chazal bring this down. It's a similar thing down that demons don't have these types of shadows. 
Rambam, when he brings the halacha down, he makes no mention of the requirement that we find the shadows. He just says, you hear a voice, trust it, go with it, write the get. Same thing in, in Yvamas, it says, if you hear a voice saying, my name is so-and-so, I'm mortally wounded, I'm, my death is imminent, my wife can remarry. So, you hear such a voice, you can allow his wife to remarry. The laws of Aguna, they say, that's fine, you can trust that, you can allow his wife to remarry. Kamara asked, how do you know? Maybe it's a demonic impersonator. Again, shadow, shadow of a shadow. Ramam leaves it all out. So the, the question is, why? These are Gemaras. These are important halachas. You have to see the shadows, otherwise uh, maybe it's a demon. So the Rishonim, the Ran, and the Kesav Mishnah, they give all kinds of answers, how the Ramam understood that at a later phase in the Gemara, the Gemara is, is, uh, rejects the original question, that you, we don't need to have such a high level of proof that we're more lenient in, in these cases, so, and so on and so forth, all over the place. The, the Mepharshim gave other individual reasons for each of these cases where the Ramam left out Halachas rooted in the supernatural. They came up with reasons for every one of these cases. What, one of the, in the 19th century, a number of mainstream Gedalei Akronim, though, did articulate this rule that the Rambam, there, there's a common theme here, the Rambam left out all kinds of halachas that deal with the supernatural. Rabbi Yosef Shal Nathanson, in his Shoah Lameshev, he talks about a Rambam. The Gemara Chagiga has a, a fascinating and important sugi about mental illness. It gives various diagnostic criteria and or definitions of mental illness, the different types of activities which are considered uh, evidence of a deranged mind. And Rambam leaves them out. Rambam just says, what's, uh, the Gemara goes into detail, it gives three examples, discusses all of them or one of them. The Rambam leaves it all out and just says, what's a shota? Someone who behaves like a shota. Someone who is, behaves as a person of unsi- unsound mind. Why do you leave out the Gemara's examples? Rambam Nathanson says, because the Gemara's examples are rooted in a model of mental illness which involves demons, the, or, or Ruach Rat. says that one of the examples is someone who is Lundbevesakvaros, he goes out and spends the night in the cemetery. That's because he's trying to uh, access and uh, consort with demons. Ram doesn't, Ram doesn't want to bring anything down. It has to do with demons and so on. So, however, the Shalom Eshav says the Rambam, a fascinating expression, he says the Rambam was Yerasa Kodemes L'Chachmaso. He had too much discretion, too much respect for Chazal, for mainstream opinion. He didn't want to come out and say, I disagree with this. So he just reworded the halacha in a way that avoided mention of demons. The Marsham from the Gedolia Postcom of the 19th century, the Marsham writes in a letter, someone asked him, the, the, the Simonim of Rosh Hashanah, one of the most iconic observances of, of, of modern Jewish practice, the Simonim we eat, apple and honey, other ones, apple and honey is later, it's not from the Gemara, but the Gemara gives various vegetables and so on that we eat or view on Rosh Hashanah. Ramam leaves it all out, doesn't bring any Simonim of Rosh Hashanah. So why? Why does Ramam leave it out? Masham says, because Rambam viewed Simonim as an element of superstition, of the paranormal, and he, and he doesn't like things that are, that, that are, that are not uh, scientific. Masham hastens to add, of course, we are Mamina Bnei Maminim, if Chazal said it, we don't accept this, we, 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 we embrace the Simonim in the hope that it'll give us a good year, but the Rambam, he says, the Rambam has this clear pattern that he omits everything to do with the supernatural. Right, so how he's pointing out that the Simanim do have a religious component and they're not some kind of uh, pure superstition and as a matter of fact, the Me'iri the Me'iri who was a follower of the Rambam in many ways and enthusiastically embraced the Rambam's rationalistic ways the Me'iri did accept the Simanim but he totally recharacterizes them chas v'shalom, it should be superstition he says he totally recharacterizes them in a very rationalistic way he says the simanim are reminders to us to, the, to, to, to we Jews how we should behave he says when Chazal say 
Now that we say, a person should do these things in Rosh Hashanah. What does that mean? Here he says, that it should be superstition. The Gemara is telling us, you might think, what's the vote of Hashem on Rosh Hashanah? Go to Shul, Davin, blow shofar, real serious vote of Hashem. You go home, you're off duty. You're eating, you're, this is your downtime. You just eat and, and behave like a regular person. No, Chazal says, even when you eat, even when you're not engaged in, in pure spiritual avodah, even then you have to remember that it's Rosh Hashanah and you have to try to absorb the lessons of Rosh Hashanah. All the simanim refer, the reminders to us to be good. And that's why he actually redefines some of the simanim. We say, for example, our enemies should be terminated. He says, we don't mean our, mortal, our, our, ter- our, our terrestrial enemies, those who, those who do us harm. That's not what we're worried about in Rosh Hashanah, he says. That, that's, you know, pray to Hashem, Hashem should help us. That's not our focus in Rosh Hashanah. He says, who are the enemies of a person? Sins. Sin, Averis are the enemies of a person. Hitamu Seneinu means we should take the lesson to heart and do tshuva and, uh, and, not, uh, and, 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 and eradicate our, our, the true enemies of a person. That's the idea of Simon Amelsi. It's not a superstition that we hope to have a good omen. It, it, the reminders, the reminders to keep us focused on the Avodah Rosh Hashanah, even when we're not in shul and we're not davening. Okay, but Raman left them out, and the Marsham suggests it's because he didn't like anything that seemed superstitious. So the Shamir, you know, some suggest the Raman may have viewed the Shamir. There's no earthly creature that can do this. There's no earthly creature that we know that can split stone and iron. The Raman may have felt this is some kind of uh, fantastic creature which he didn't acknowledge was scientific maybe that's why he left it out hard to know, but we'll see what did the Ram himself say about Shamir what is the, in, the, in the Mishnah Torah he leaves it out but in the Pirisha Mishnah, both in Pirkei Avos and in Sota, he does acknowledge the Chazal talk about something called the Shamir, what is the Shamir so in, in Sota in Sota the Rambam says Shamir is a Nachash, it's some kind of creature, it's Chofer Ha'avanim uh, the, according to the translation I had, it says Nachash. There might be other translations that have it as something different, a reptile, perhaps. Yeah, I think somewhere he calls it a somewhere he calls it a sheriff's katan, I believe. Someone calls it a sheriff's katan. The the the, the, the Rambam in in Mishnah Pirkei Avos calls it a sheriff's katan. So it's some kind of creature, some kind of reptile, or some kind of uh, creature. Chofer Havanim, it can dig or crack stones. That's how they engraved the Orvatumim, the Choshen. It was Matzi Bismarman Asmanim. Rambam alludes to the fact that it's not, you know, we don't know of it today, we don't know of such a thing. It was taken away at the, at the Chorban Beis Mikdash. It was once available, it was once accessible. Rambam seems to believe this was an actual thing, and a, maybe even a natural thing, but we don't have it today, but they once had such a thing. I don't know, if, it's hard to know if Rambam would have called this a miracle or not. We'll, we'll discuss what Rambam's son said about it in a moment. The... In Pirkei he just says it was a sheriff's katan, it cracked stones, and that's how they built the Beis Mikdash. He doesn't say, again, he doesn't say the Choshen, he says Beis Mikdash, but he doesn't comment. He seems to think it was a, a natural, ordinary thing. Rambam's son, Rabbi Avram ben Rambam, who has a Pirush Torah, he discusses the Shamir as well, and he says that, how do they engrave the stones of the Choshen and Eifod? Pashte de Krab, Shudr he says... It was the way we do it today. It's the, it's the way, the same techniques that we use today. We have sharp implements and we engrave stones. However, he says, that's Pashup Shat. But the Chachamim say they use the Shamir. It's like a worm. He says, it's like a worm. The, the Shamir today, in, tra- in traditional circles, is widely understood to be a worm. Rabbi Avram and Rambam says that, a kind of worm, or like a worm. The, the earliest source who says that is Rashi, apparently. Rashi, in a couple of places, in the Gemara and Gittin, in a couple of places, Rashi refers to the Shamir as 
I'm sorry, Rashi and Pesachim, Rashi refers to the Shamir as a kamintalas. It was like a worm, and it had this marvelous power of cutting through the hardest things. So Rabbi Avraman around them also said it was a worm, and he says they put it on stones and it cracked the stones without without taking anything away from the material of the stones. It's practically a miracle. It's almost a miracle. It's like a miracle, he says. Oh, Karavla. Very strange expression. It's similar to a miracle or resembles a miracle. So he's kind of hedging. It's sort of a miracle. It's not quite a miracle, he says. It's, ne- it's nearly a miracle. It's almost miraculous. So again, uh, he, 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 it's a midrash. He doesn't think it's Pashup Shad, but it is a midrash. And Rambam himself, it's hard to know whether he thought this was a completely naturalistic thing or a nace or not. But anyway, so we have Rambam and Rambam acknowledges that it seems marvelous. It seems like something that, it doesn't seem like something that we would, that we would expect. But this is what Chazal say, and it's, it's nearly a nace. The Barbanel has a very creative, very novel explanation of the Shamir. He says that, he brings his opinions in the Gemara, he says about how they cut the how they cut the stones in the Mikdash. She says, Rebbe it's very easy. They cut it with iron tools. Off-site, that's easy to understand. In, in, in Malachim, the Barbadals in Malachim, how they cut the stones. However, he says, other Chum and the Gemara say, at least for the stones in the Mikdash, Rebbe Yudah, Rebbe they say that it was not done with iron. It was done with the worm, the worm called Shamir. He says, Barbadals says, that he says they, they say things about the Shamir that I'm not even going to bring because they're Derek Drash, they're fantastic Drush, and I'm not even going to quote them, he says. He's probably alluding to the Gemara and Gitten, which we haven't discussed yet. The Gemara and Gitten has this incredible story of how you got the Shamir. It brings Psukim in Koheles, that the, the Psukim in Koheles say that Shlomo had, that Shlomo had shade, at least according to one interpretation, Shlomo had in his collection of, uh, of things, Shlomo, it's the, the, Pus, the Pusik in, in Koheles says, it says, I made for myself all kinds of things. I collected, I gathered, sharim v'sharos, and also tanugos mei adam, different types of luxuries and indulgences. Shida v'shidos. Also, I had shidim v'shidos. So what, sharim v'sharos, I mean, zemer, or instruments, or song. Tanugos mei adam, our bathhouses, and other forms of pampering himself. Shida v'shidos, hacha and bavel, tirgimu shida v'shidsin, male and female demons. Marava amri shidza. In Eretz Yisrael, they say that it refers to uh, carriages, wagons. People collect cars. Shlomo collected wagons, according to the Yushalmi, demons, according to the Bavli. There is a theory, I'm not so familiar with it. Modern academics say that the, the Bavli is much more open to the supernatural, to the everyday paranormal, than the Yushalmi is. Yushalmi tends to be more, more, a little more down-to-earth. But I don't, know, I don't know if this is well accepted or if it's really true. But this would be one example, perhaps, that Hacha, they say, Shlomo had demons, and there they say he had carriages. Again, when it comes to the Shamir, both the Babli and the Yushalmi say he had the Shamir. The question is what he used it for. But the Babli says he had demons. Why did he need demons? What was the point of these demons? The Gemara gives an elaborate story. It says he wanted to use whole stones. And he says, the, how did he do it? How could he, without using iron, how could he do that? They told him, you need the Shamir. Moshe used the Shamir for the Avni Ha'efo, or the Choshen. So Moshe used the Shamir. Go find the Shamir. He asked him, well, where do I find the Shamir? So they said, we can't tell you. You have to ask the demons. Torture the demons, put them on the rack. The demons will tell you. Maybe they know, and they'll tell you demons are not going to cooperate on their own free will, but if you, if, you apply, if, you, if you pressure them, they'll tell you. He got demons, male and female demons. He, he, he squeezed them. They said, we don't know. 
You know, it's like in the, it's like in the, the movies. Here we torture, give me a name. Okay, here's a name, Ashmedai. You need to go to Ashmedai, Malka Dashida. He knows, you go to him. He'll, he'll tell you the, he'll tell you, maybe he knows where, he, he knows, maybe he knows where they are. Where can I find Ashmedai? They gave an elaborate story of where Ashmedai lives and how you can find him. We're not going to get into all the details. So, Benayahu, Benayahu, this is, I think, what you were alluding to before, Shlomo, one of Shlomo's inner circle, his trusted uh, lieutenants. Benayahu, Benayahu, sure enough, he captured uh, Ashmedai. They had various adventures on the way. It's a long, interesting Gemara, not all relevant to us. He brought Ashmedai back to Shlomo, and Shlomo asked Ashmedai, finally, Ashmedai said, you have the whole world, he said. He said, he said what do you... Uh, he said, uh, he said, he said, what do you want? He says, you, 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 have, you have everything in the world. He says, everything in the world except, except, uh, except your grave. He, said, he, said, he, says, he says, no, he says, when you die, you're going to have nothing left except the four cubits of your grave. Now you have the whole world, he says, and it's not enough for you. You have to have me also. What do you offer me, he asked Shlomo. Why do you need me so badly? Shlomo said, I need the Shamir. Tell me where I get the Shamir. I need the Shamir for the base of Mikdash. Ashmedai said, I don't have it. I can't get it for you, but it's in the, the Sarah, the Yam, a certain angelic uh, authority over the sea. He has it. You're not going to get it from him, apparently. He, there's no way you can beat him. You can beat me. You can't beat him. But the, the weak point in the chain of custody is he sometimes he, he gives it in, into the custody of a certain bird, a certain, a certain wild bird, Tarnagola Barra, a certain kind of wild rooster, and he needs it. We'll see what he needs it for. And he needs it. If you can get it from him, that you can get the Shamir. Why does this bird need it? Because this bird terraforms mountains. He goes to mountains, he puts the shamir down, the, the shamir cracks open the mountains, and then he, uh, and then he puts seeds in, and he, he grows things there. So that's what this bird does. He uses the shamir for terraforming mountains. Okay, so they have to get the bird to pull the shamir and then snatch it from him. So they, took the, they went to the bird's nest, they put a, a glass dome over the nest, the bird came back, he saw his chicks were there, apparently it was a strong thing of glass, he couldn't break it, he was desperate to get to his birds, his babies, so he went and borrowed the, the shamir, he used it to crack open the glass, they came in, they, they, they snatched the shamir, this bird was so, the, the Sarah Shalyam trusted it, it swore, it gave its solemn word, he would return it, the bird was so uh, distraught that it was unable to fulfill its word, it killed itself, not a very happy ending for the bird. A fascinating story, a, a, lot, a lot of questions here. But the point is, this is what Abarbanel is alluding to. Of it's a gadata, right, or different levels of meaning. This is what the Karanara said before when he said the Shamir is so inaccessible that in practice you're almost never going to have it. Shlomo had it, Moshe had it, but in general you're not going to have it, so the Ram didn't bring it. And this is what Abarbanel says, because Al said things that are Derek Drash, and he's not going to get into the Drash of the Shamir. However, Abarbanel then says something very fascinating. He says, I found a commentary of a certain Chacha Mechach Mehanotrim, a certain Christian scholar who wrote, how did Shlomo cut his stones if, they, if, he didn't have, if he wasn't using iron tools? So again, the Christians are not going to discuss the Avni Achoshin, because that's based on a drush of Milosim, the Christians don't have these drushes. But the Pesukim and Malachim are clear, they're, they're Evan Shlema, there were no iron tools. So the Christians were grappling with the same question that Chazal grappled with. So the Christian also said that they used something like a Shamir. He says, they, he says in the time of Shlomo they would cut stones, they would carve stones not using a creature that would bite through. Up to now, we've been assuming the Shamir would bite through, it would carve through the, the stone with its, uh, mechanically. The, the Christian said it was done with the blood of the worm. The blood was an incredibly uh, you know, reactive, corrosive something, uh, solvent. The blood, the blood would chemically. Sim- chemically would cut through the stones. He says diamond cutters use this, they, they, they cut diamonds. 
when the, when that that when they uh, the, the diamond cutters don't use the shamir, but it's just they use goat blood. When they want to cut diamonds, they use the damsi irim, the blood of goats. You put it on sapir, a nikra diamond, on the hardest stones, it can cut right through them. Iron can't do it. Diamond is higher than harder than iron. Obviously, the diamond cutters have tools, but they, but the, the he says the diamond cutters use goat blood, and that's uh, that's what the, and, and that's he says perhaps that Robert Nell says that's what Chazal meant by the shamir. They don't mean that mechanically it cut. They mean chemically it cut. He says, he says that the that that that, that apparently that, that apparently this. I'm not sure if the Christian actually did say it was part of the the way they cut the choshen. I'm not sure that I'm not sure why he would have assumed that way. Well, the Barbanella is saying this on his own. He says that that's how they cut the stones, which were really hard. They, 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 he mentions the Shamir. Barbanella says that this idea, this idea, is, can, can, we can fit this into Chazal who say it was the Shamir. Baruch Shabachar B'Devreim, the great wisdom of Chazal, they understood this. Maybe that's what Chazal meant when they said the Shamir was like a Saoro, was like a barley. They don't just mean the size, but they mean it had, it had the chemical properties of the goat, that the blood was this highly reactive chemical substance that could cut through the hardest of stones, and the, and the blood of the Shamir can do that as well. What is all this talk about the blood of, of goats or Shamirs cutting diamonds? This was apparently a very popular belief in the medieval period. There were all kinds of, uh, it was apparently a myth, but there were all kinds of ideas that were common in the medieval up, up through the Renaissance and afterward in Europe that goat blood could cut the, the hardest stones. And as a matter of fact, and, and the Christians had all kinds of Christological allegory. The blood of the goat has to do with the blood of their of Yeshu, and it and it can, can, it can and it can cut through the, the demonic forces. But this is a very popular belief in, in Christian Europe for hundreds of years. We find there was a fellow named Sir Thomas Brown. He was a polymath, a scholar, and a religious man, but he was also a scholar and scientist in the 17th century in England. He wrote uh, a fascinating book, a fascinating book called called Pseudodoxia Epidemica, Enquiries into Very Many Received Tenets and Commonly Presumed Truths. Basically, he debunks all kinds of uh, myths and legends that, he, that, he that did not stand up to reason and experiment and evidence. He says it was often referred to as the, the, the book of vulgar errors, the book of common and, uh, and just wrong, wrong, wrong beliefs. He has a section in his book where he deals with, uh, with this goat blood idea and first, we hear it in every mouth, and in many good authors read it, that a diamond, which is the hardest of stones, not yielding unto steel, emery, or anything but its own powder, can be made soft or broke by the blood of a goat. This, is, this much is affirmed by Pliny and Salinas, classical authors, Albertus, Cyprian, Austin, Isidore, many Christian writers. He mentions the Christological allegory and so on. However, he says, this is, he says kind of dryly, this is more easily affirmed than proved. He says, but he asked the diamond cutters, lapidaries, and such as profess the art of cutting the stone. They do generally deny it, he says. And those who do accept it, they, they limit it and they qualify it so much that it has no real... Yeah, no practical significance. They, they, they limit it so much that it really has no... He says, uh, the problem is, he says, they're the early Christians, the Holy Fathers, without further inquiry, they took it for granted and they, and they passed it along, but it's, it's simply not true. absolutely against the church. Right. <laughs> so he, he denies it, and he says this whole thing is not true, he says. And uh, anyway, so the Barbarinel thought, they apparently believed this medieval idea, the Christian did, the Barbarinel did, that the goat blood can cut diamonds. And he said, maybe that's like the Shamir. I mean, you could still say the Shamir did this, even if goat's blood can't do it, but the whole idea of the goat's blood, that much apparently was a, uh, was a medieval European myth, which is not actually true. The Tavares Yisrael, in his commentary to Sota, he, 
he brings the barmanel that it was done chemically with the blood and not mechanically with the, the worm itself. So he says that's you know, clever maybe, but it's not. That's not what Chazal say. That that's not consistent with Aramisera. He doesn't explain exactly what he means, where he sees that it was mechanical rather than chemical. But he says, look in the Gemara, the Yushalmi says that it's clear that it, that it's clear that it's the the goof of the shamir, it's the mechanical properties of the shamir, not the chemical things. That's why they had to wrap it in the special in the, in the special case because otherwise, because otherwise it would bite through and so on. Anyway, so the Farisrael you know, rejects this. One final approach to the Shamir we find in some authors, there, there, there are a variety of different authors in different contexts who seem to understand that the Shamir, we alluded to this earlier, was not actually a creature at all. It was a mineral. It was some kind of stone, some kind of stone or mineral that, that could cut, that, that, that was hard and that had, a, that had cutting properties. We find this in some detail in the Sefer Masay Hashem. Masay Hashem was written by Rabbi Yezir Ashkenazi. He was a 16th century... Chacham, who, uh, who, who wrote this Pirish Torah called Masay Hashem, and he, he was in the, as I said, 16th century, he was in the, he was in Italy, and in other, other cities in Europe. He writes, he says, there are different sheets what the Shamir is, some say it's uh, a sharp thorn, even a plant, uh, some say it's a, it's, a, it's a hard stone. He says, in my opinion, he says, what is the Shamir? It is the waste material Solas that you find in Machtav Shal Odem, in a quarry, in a mine of Odem, of Ruby, Shakari Rubin. The, the quarry, that, 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 a Ruby quarry, there, there's some leftover, less valuable stone, and that, has the, that, that stone is very, very hard and is a very good cutter. He says, if, I guess when you, when you extract the rubies, you're left with waste, the rock, and other material. So that material that's typically found, apparently, that residue, that, that, that he says, that the, that stone, which is found residue of the ruby quarrying, is a very, very strong stone. He tells you what it is. I was unable to decipher. He gives you, he gives you the, the word in Italian and German. He says in, 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 in Laz and in Italy, in, in French or Latin and Italian, the word is shmiral, shin mem yud reshid lamed, smiral or shmiral, or, and in Ashkenaz it's shmorlak, shin mem vav resh lamed kuf. And, that, and that's where the word Shamir, it's related to the word Shamir, he says. It's the, Shamir comes from this, uh, from, from this type of stone. I cannot figure out what kind of stone it was. The, there is a stone called Spinal, S-P-I-N-E-L, which is commonly found alongside rubies. It's not all that hard, though. It's not, uh, I don't know how that could fit into Schmirling, Schmirl, and Schmirlach. It's not that hard. It's, it's only eight on the hardness scale. Diamond is ten. This is eight. All right. But the, maybe, maybe the Shamir, he says... This, this stone, this very hard stone found uh, as a neighbor of rubies was used to cut very hard things, like uh, used to cut glass, he says. He brings, like many other Mepharshim, bring a pasuk that says, Kishamer chazak mitzur nasati mitzchech. Hashem says, I've made your, your forehead hard as a, a, a shamir, and, and, and it refers to a chazak mitzur. It's like a shamir, it's harder than a rock. Meaning shamir is referred to as a very hard thing, and it implies that it's a kind of a, a rocky thing. If it's a worm, then again, the worm might have tremendous mechanical power, but you wouldn't refer to the worm as being chazak mitzur. The worm is not harder or stronger than tzur. The, the worm is soft and mushy, but somehow it has this quality that it can cut through, cut through things. If it was actually a worm, he says, if we interpret chazal, if we take chazal, at, uh, we accept chazal that it was a worm, he still is so enamored of his idea that, the, that, that, that it's this rock that's found in the ruby quarries. He says, the, the, he says, this rock got its name, he says, 
because it can do what the Shamir can do. The, the worm Shamir of Chazal had this incredible cutting power, and this rock found with the rubies, the Shmerlach, he says, was called a, a name derived etymologically from Shamir because it also shared this property that it could cut through the hardest of substances. Okay, so the Masih Hashem suggests it was some kind of stone. And the truth is, this goes back to Kadmonim. There is a pshat they bring from Rafsadia. I, I, I didn't see it firsthand, but, but various contemporary writers bring that Rafsadia seems to have understood that the Shamer was a very hard rock. And even the Aruch, the, the, the Sefer Aruch, refers to the Shamer. Again, it's not entirely clear if he's referring to this Shamer that cut the, the Chazal referred to as a Briar, but, but he actually, uh, in his entry, the Aruch's great dictionary of a thousand years ago, he actually says the Shamer is a, is a hard stone, and, he, and, he, and like a diamond, he says. A diamond. So there are actually some sources in Armasera that seem to describe the Shamir as a very hard stone, a diamond or a very hard stone. It's difficult to read that into the Gemaras. The Gemaras make it pretty clear that it's... Uh, the Gemaras seems... Again, the word Bria usually means creature. You could say Bria means any created thing, like a diamond. The fact that he had to store it in Svugin and things, that seems to indicate that it was uh, actually a creature that would actively cut through, like the Tavares Israel says. Anyway, the bottom line is, the Shamir of Chazal is mysterious. No one knows exactly what it is. Rashi... Rambam, or Rabbi Ben Rambam, all said it was a worm, or a small creature, or a snake, or a reptile of some sort, and that has been the dominant shot, according to Armasara of Torah Shabbat and the way the Gemara is understood. There are, however, other pshatim as well. We have the Abarbanel, that it was a creature, but its blood cut chemically, and not that the creature cut mechanically. We have the idea of some very early authorities a thousand years ago, as well as the Masih Hashem 500 years ago, 40, 50 years ago, who say that it was, it was actually, it was, a, uh, it was a rock, or it was a very hard powder or rock that was used to cut, not actually, uh, not flora or fauna at all, but it was actually a rock. End of the day, there, there were different interpretations of the Shamir, it was some kind of incredible creature, which is, at least the, the, the original, most potent version, is no longer around, according to what Chazal tell us, it was Batel at the Chorban Beis either the first or the second. As we said, Rambam, leave, Rambam even though the Pirish Mishnayas, he comments on the Shamir, in the Mishnah Torah, in his halachic work, he leaves out all mention of Shamir, and all mention of, the, of how they had to cut the, the stones of the Choshen. He implies they were cut using normal cutting techniques, which is what his son, Rabbi Avram, also suggests was the Pshut Mekru, was cut during normal, using normal techniques. So what happened to the Gemara? What happened to the Bavli? We said it's not in the Tosefta, it's not in the Yushalmi, but the Bavli does say that the stones of the Choshen had to be cut by the Shamir, not using normal, normal tools. So we said there are a few possibilities. Either the Rambam felt that it's Machlokas, different opinions, Bavli and Yerushalmi, or two opinions in the Bavli, and he passed like the other opinion in the Bavli, or like the Karanara says, he, that, that he, uh, he understood it was only L'Chatkila, and it was only an ideal way to do it, but it's not Ma'akev, and since it was so hard to find anyway, he didn't bother bringing it down. Or, as we said, perhaps the Rambam avoids anything which seems too supernatural anyway, and therefore that he was somehow motivated. Again, he still have to explain if Chazal believed in it and felt it was a halacha about it. He still have to explain how he got past that, but there is this idea that the Rambam is often reluctant. As his son says, it's karov to a nace or doma to a nace. So the Rambam does have an idea, does have a, a policy that he often omits the supernatural, and maybe that was in play here as well. That's, uh, that's a possibility, perhaps, as well.